Hi everyone, I'm Riyadh Akyol and this is Dignified Resilience, a podcast on fresh narratives on confronting despair, alleviating distress, and forging ahead. In this podcast, we hear from people around the globe at all stages of life and variety of industries and learn how to channel dignified resilience to survive, feed the soul to heal, and connect with others through inspiring compassionate actions and behavior. At the same time, I aim to grow a global conversation that seeks to better acknowledge different sociocultural perspectives on meaningfully weathering life's adversities and achieving well-being. Here is a noble and humane invitation for surpassing our old selves by learning about and from other people's moving forces and limitations for successfully overcoming affliction and ache. Remember, we have different lives, distinct pathways, cultures, and contexts, but we can find common ground in supporting dignified resilience anywhere. So let's go then. Hello everyone, and welcome to Dignified Resilience. Did you know that by the end of 2019, the number of people forcibly displaced for various reasons, war, conflict, persecution, human rights violations, had grown to 79.5 million, which is the highest number on record according to available data. Well, that's the reality that we're gonna be talking about in today's episode. On June 18, uh, two days before World Refugees Day, UNHCR published a global trends report which showed that forced displacement is now affecting more than 1% of humanity, meaning one in every 97 people, and confirmed that fewer and fewer of those who flee are able to go home and to return. So in this episode, I'm joined by two experts, uh, Marta Guerrero-Ble and Rachel Schmitke from Refugees International, um, an organization that advocates for life-saving assistance and protection for displaced people and promotes solutions to displacement crises. And one thing that I read that they pride themselves in is that they do not accept any government or UN funding ensuring the independence and credibility of their work. Um, I'd like to also introduce them in more detail. Uh, Martha Guerrero-Ble focuses on expanding labor market access to refugees. She's a graduate of Georgetown Masters of Science in Foreign Service, where she focused on the intersection of development and humanitarian issues. During her studies, Martha interned at the International Organization for Migration in Myanmar, where she worked in labor displacement and skills development programs. Prior to Georgetown, Martha focused on leveraging the private sector towards development outcomes. She worked with female-led startups in Mexico City helping them to kickstart their businesses. Originally from Tampico, Mexico, Marta received her bachelor's in international business from Tech de Monterrey. And Rachel uh, Schmidtke, she is the advocate for Latin America at Refugees International, uh, because we will speak specifically about that region uh, a little bit uh, in today's episode. Previously, Rachel played a key role in the development of the Mexico Institute's migration portfolio in Woodrow Wilson International uh, Center for Scholars, Scholars. She produced policy work on Mexico, Central America, and uh, U.S. migration, asylum, and refugee policies. And she previously worked as part of the World Bank, World Bank Gender Group, as well as the UN World Food Program in Lima, Peru, and USAID in San Salvador in El Salvador. 
uh, returned Peace Corps Peru volunteer. Rachel received her MA in International Development Policy from Duke University, focusing on migration, Latin American foreign policy, and gender. I'm joined by two great experts. I'm so excited for today's conversation. First of all, how are you today, Martha? I mean, uh, I'm very excited, first of all, to be here because uh, we're going to be definitely discussing a topic that is of extreme importance today, especially with COVID, the pandemic, everything. So um, discussing the needs of refugees is definitely, uh, uh, I'm very proud to have this opportunity and raise this important topic here with you, Riada. Thank you. Rachel, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having both of us. I know Marta and I are very excited to talk about this topic that we're both very passionate about. I think, uh, you know, trying to maintain the motivation and keep, you know, pushing forward during this time, it's been a very challenging time for refugees in particular. So, you know, really hoping that we can keep bringing those voices forth in our work. Uh, absolutely. Well, uh, first, before we dive in, I do want to just uh, shortly paint some big picture for our listeners at the beginning. Um, we have five countries that today account for two-thirds of people displaced across borders, Syria, Venezuela, Afghanistan, South Sudan, and Myanmar. And at the end of 2019, the largest forcibly displaced population worldwide, of course, were by far Syrians with 13.2 million, uh, including those 6.6 um, .6 million refugees and more than 6 million who are internally displaced people. And um, I do want to, of course, mention that when considering those internationally displaced situations, Syrians also topped the list with 6.7 million persons, followed by Venezuela's at 4.5 million, Afghanistan and South Sudan had 3.0 and 2.2 million, respectively, and then Myanmar uh, with 1.1 million. So, Martha, um, on March 11, 2020, your and the World Health Organization actually officially declared the situation a pandemic. And then on March 30th, your organization already published a report that the pandemic international response must be inclusive of refugees, asylum seekers, and IDPs. As expected, of course, now we do see a few months later that as the pandemic spreads, the coronavirus disproportionately impacted or impacts um, these groups and the world's most vulnerable, among them refugees and asylum seekers and IDPs. So, as written in your report, already their displacement leaves them disadvantaged in many ways. But can you elaborate a bit more for our listeners uh, about how these factors um, affect more specifically refugees in terms of the pandemic and everything that's changed additionally to their already uh, present vulnerabilities before it? Yeah, and um, thank you so much. And we are... Um... What we're seeing is that even before the pandemic, refugees lacked access to uh, a lot of rights, including the right to work, the right to be included sometimes in the health systems of their host countries. Obviously, this varies from a country to country basis, but uh, generally speaking, in low and middle income countries where most refugees are, are hosted, uh, there's a widespread lack of access to uh, these rights. And this lack of access to rights has led to refugees to be disproportionately affected by the pandemic. And what we are seeing is a widespread loss of livelihood for many refugee families, as well as the possibility for them to contract to have the virus without the possibility to access health services. 
And um, what we are seeing right now with refugees, family, refugees and refugee families is that um, there's mass evictions of individuals, especially urban refugees that have to cover their rent or um, the food insecurity is increasing as well because they are not able to afford their basic needs. Um, we have to also consider that the delivery of services and aid by humanitarian organizations has also been reduced as a result of the, of the lockdowns. So this pandemic has definitely put the world at, um, in a big problem, you know, because we don't really know anymore how to respond to what is happening and refugees are paying the, the price. Right. So, Rachel, how are these and other issues playing out across this major humanitarian and displacement crisis? What are these at least key principles and recommendations that should be part of any effective response to the pandemic? Or rather, if each humanitarian crisis will require a specific strategy, can we talk what are the commonalities that maybe we can talk about? Sure. I mean, it's a, it's a complicated question. I think, you know, this is obviously an unprecedented time and it is a very fluid time where things are changing very quickly. But I think some core things that we have to keep in mind when framing policy responses to the pandemic is that governments really need to include refugees in their responses. Um, we found in certain countries, um, Venezuelan refugees and migrants are saying that they don't feel included in the government response. Um, so that's something that has to really be considered because if you're leaving refugees out of the equation, they're already some of the most vulnerable oftentimes in society. And so by leaving them out, it further pushes them into vulnerability, which causes lasting long-term effects. So really the government response is one of the main challenges that we, we find that needs to, is one of the best solutions really to the problem, but it is a challenge as well. Um, I think the other thing to take into account is um, humanitarian response at this time. I think particularly looking at the Venezuela situation, you know, this this crisis has been going on for about five years now. It's, a, it's heading into what we call like protracted territory, meaning that it's no longer just, you know, happening, you know, very short term, it is a long term crisis. And so the um, strategies around how we respond to that have changed over time when we're looking more at things like longer term integration measures, like Martha mentioned, um, access to work, access to healthcare, um, affordable housing, these things that really help a, a refugee or a migrant um, integrate well into society. But what, what the pandemic is doing is essentially um, throwing all that kind of out the window what we're really having to worry about now is the urgent humanitarian response. So you have, as Martha mentioned, mass evictions, food insecurity, um, really lack of any sort of type of livelihood or, or resiliency mechanisms. And so that's pushing you know, all the progress that we've made back three, four years in many of these countries. So I think um, focusing as well on not only the longer term integration, but really now on the urgent humanitarian need is something that we have to focus on in our in our response. And I think the final thing, which I think we'll probably talk about a little bit later, is um, really taking into account the needs of women and girls and members of the LGBTQ community. I mean, there's, there's certain sectors that we know in refugee populations that are often um, face disproportionate um, difficulties and challenges during the pandemic. So we have to start bringing in a bit more of a gendered response to what's going on as well. So those are a few things that we can work on, but it's obviously changing day-to-day, -day, so. Absolutely, and I definitely do want to address um, various things that you mentioned, and specifically integration of the refugees that I want to talk about with Martha. Um, in, in terms of the host countries, if we speak about it, okay, we know that Turkey hosted the largest number of refugees worldwide with 3.6 million people, then 
Colombia second with 1.8 million, including Venezuelans displaced abroad. Then Pakistan 1.4 million, Uganda 1.4, and Germany 1.1 million. But these numbers, which keep rising, um, are not also easy automatically on the host countries as well. So uh, Marta is the right person to, to ask because she leads the Let Them Work initiative at Refugees International, which uh, from what I gather is a joint program with the Center for Global Development, which seeks to expand labor market access for refugees worldwide. So can you please tell us more about this partnership and what do you, how, what is, what should we be thinking about in terms of both the programming and what kind of financing or what are the recommendations in terms of um, the scope of the work within the Let Them Work initiative that you are charge of? Yeah, and um, well, I just want to highlight the fact that refugees are commonly perceived or referred to as a burden by host countries. So normally we're like, Refugees, refugee hosting countries refer to hosting refugees as a burden that needs to be assuaged or uh, that they need the support uh, by donors in order to cover that burden. But uh, with the Let Them Work initiative, we really wanna create a consciousness that um, refugees are not necessarily a burden, but they're also economic contributors to their host communities and that they consume food, they pay taxes, as especially on the items that they consume, they work, they increase the productivities of the companies where they or the businesses where they work. And overall, they, they are active participants of their host communities as other as, as workers or, you know, just neighbors um, and people in general, like, um, and yes, they do uh, sometimes pose a burden in terms of like, you know, increase expenses on fiscal and institution expenses for, for the host countries. But in general, we have to consider that, that, that those expenses are often also counteracted by the benefits that refugees bring. And basically the Let Them Work initiative focus on that, like understanding how we can create these shared benefits for refugees and host communities through expanding their access to labor and their inclusion into the economy of their host countries understanding that um, they, they're not necessarily a burden, but when they're given the chance, they can contribute actively and bring many benefits from these fiscal benefits, from higher productivity to their host countries, to GDP and economic growth. And this is something that we are already seeing at some scale in countries like Colombia and Peru, where uh, Venezuelans are already uh, boosting economic growth in this in these nations uh, at least even at least before the pandemic now we're yet to see uh how's playing with the economic shocks of 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 covid but in general they they do build more resilient economies because they are active economic contributors so basically the let them work initiative we are trying to understand what are the barriers that prevent refugees from ac ac accessing this employment opportunities and integrating into the economy and being active participants and uh, generating evidence um, that shows host countries how to, to create these uh, shared benefits and a win-win for host communities and refugees themselves. Yeah, I mean, that that is absolutely that very important. And I think that we see now slowly that in countries like Colombia, you mentioned, and then Ethiopia, Jordan, and Turkey, refugees and forced migrants are slowly gaining the formal right and opportunity to kind of be included in, within the host country's economy. 
and then many of them still are not allowed to work. And uh, World Bank just recently published a report that reviews the obstacles as well that refugees and mm -hmm. IDs face when integrating in the in the labor market. And uh, so. I wanted to ask you, Marta, what is the role of the private sector here? Uh, I know I've read some examples from Turkey, for example, with uh, Syrian uh, refugees and, and their work in the garment factories and how a lot of them were at first employed um, informally without any protections and how slowly you know, they, they've gained this official right to work. But can you tell us what's the role of the private sector here as well? It's very important because uh, mobilizing the private sector not only to participate as well into hiring refugees and mobilizing to them to be advocates uh, to show that refugees uh, can be good employees and that refugees have the capabilities to perform jobs. Uh, you know, we sometimes see refugee doctors, engineers, and very uh, highly skilled individuals working in low-skilled jobs that do not really match their skill set. So. Um, the, by the private sector having them uh, hire refugees and share the experiences of uh, good experiences in hiring refugees, because there's a common perception that refugees, for some reason, are not skilled enough, or because they were uh, educated in another in another country, they don't have the capability to perform the job. But that's that's a misconception, and having the experiences shared by the, the by the private sector is very important. But to achieve this, we also need the support of international actors. So it's really a collaborative space um, to allow the private sector and to promote private sector participation um, as advocates and as um, employers as well for uh, refugee communities. Mm. And kind of in line of what you said, uh, World Refugee Day is just behind us. And I, I've, I've seen many organizations um, from UNHCR to many uh, other um, ones, NGOs as well, we're spotlighting precisely that role that refugees are playing now as essential workers as well in the fight mm -hmm. against COVID-19 in many countries, um, and how refugees make these societies and their host countries more uh, stronger and, and resilient as well, as you said. Uh, so. Mm, considering today, just an hour ago or so, I read it. Are we allowed to speak about lockdown and left behind, Martha? So, yes, I'll be, I'll be so excited. Absolutely. Uh, and, um, yeah. So this is, you can tell us more about it. It's the new report that's been published today about the economic effects of COVID-19 on refugees and, and economic inclusion. So um, give us the news. So yeah, I'm very excited to share that we just a couple of hours ago published our report analyzing the economic impact on co of COVID on refugees. Uh, it's titled Lockdown and Left Behind. It's a report that we co-authored with uh, the Center for Global Development and the International Rescue Committee. And basically what we find is what are the effects? So, like, we, we set ourselves uh, to ask like, what are the effects of COVID on refugees uh, livelihoods on refugees' incomes, especially if we already knew that they were kind of vulnerable and their economic integration was already uh, not so good before COVID. So basically what we found is that the lack of economic inclusion for refugees in host countries, especially in low and middle income countries, has pushed them to work in very specific types of jobs that are not only informal, but are also concentrated in hard hit sectors as a result of the pandemic. 
So we found that 60% of refugees are concentrated in hard hit sectors, which is uh, way more than the host population. Um, and this means that uh, as a result of this concentration and the job, vulner the job insecurity, refugees are more likely to lose their jobs uh, resulting from the lockdowns and the, the COVID-19. Uh, but not only losing their jobs and their livelihoods, but also like they, their, their ability to join the labor market will be also affected because they technically, in many countries, they don't have this right to actually work formally or work according to their skills. Um, so these, the pre-existing barriers for them to join the labor market um, will also affect their income. Plus, um, the, the the effects of COVID on the on aid on the delivery of humanitarian aid will also affect their income, and then the effects of COVID on that the fact that they're not included in the in the host country response and the social safety nets. So basically, we're leaving refugees with no option um, to kind of like survive. So this puts them in a really uh, precarious place where they cannot really take a day off of work and they can take exploitative work or uh, work in abusive conditions um, and just get on a, increase the risk of actually having COVID. So um, yeah, it's just really like the lack of economic inclusion previous to COVID is having tremendous effects now with the pandemic. Wow, and I think that it's very important to note, uh, and it's quite impressive that this paper represents the largest quantitative cross-country comparison of refugees. 10.64 million from what I read, or 30% of all refugees worldwide, which means that it's, it represents the situation uh, as it is from a really big sample, making it quite um, mm -hmm veritable and important. So we'll come back to Martha, but um, there are many questions now. Rachel, um, tell us what's going on in Latin America. Uh, I mean, we now know that the president of Brazil has tested positive. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I think president of Honduras as well was hospitalized. What is going on in Latin America? So yeah, Latin America is a very, um difficult time right now. I would say that it's really hitting at the peak of the virus and it really has become the global epicenter. Apart from the United States, Latin America is the epicenter of the pandemic. So the region has about 8% of the world's population, but it counts for over half of cases now. So you can see how it's disproportionately affecting the Latin America region. And unfortunately, what we've seen is that the response to the pandemic varies country by country. And so some countries have really implemented, been very strict and enforced lockdowns quickly. Other countries did not. But unfortunately, even the countries that have enforced lockdowns are still facing very high rates of infection. And really what it comes down to in, in the region is that it's a highly unequal region. And so you find that the people who have access to less health services, um, inform who will work in informal jobs, et cetera, really are bearing the brunt of the pandemic. Um, and so we really are in uncharted territory, as I mentioned earlier, and Latin America, unfortunately, still has a long way to go before the pandemic starts to ease up a little bit. And I think um, economically, the repercussions will be devastating. Oh yeah, that's a very important question. And I know both of you uh, can can chip in and in answering my precisely next question is that we know that the global humanitarian response for COVID-19 is massively underfunded. 
and as it is increasing financial and social pressures on Latin American institutions as well, um, and we see that the projections for economic growth in all countries keeps getting uh, you know lower and lower. What are governments doing, or what should they do in terms of spending these uh, resources wisely? So both of you can um, chip in. Well, uh, yeah. So basically, uh, right now, it's important to, first of all, include refugees within the planning and response. Um, refi uh, host countries might be tempted to leave refugees out uh, of the response, but this is uh, only going to make the situation worse. First of all, by, by putting refugees in a situation where uh, COVID can spread, so not necessarily making an effective uh, lowering the curve, how they say it, like reducing the, the rate of, of spread of COVID. Uh, and second of all, just generating further inequality, further suffering, especially for this very specific population that they have committed to protect, they're committed to protect. Um, so that's from the get-go. But second of all, especially now with the economic crisis and with the dire economic projections, especially in Latin America, um, it's important that uh, we consider the important role that international financial institutions play in supporting host refugees countries in their response. And right now, we are seeing a wide mobilization of resources from the World Bank, from the IMF, and from regional banks to uh, support uh, countries with uh, by providing loans, by providing grants, and providing resources for them uh, to be able to mobilize their economy and strengthen their institutions and just uh, have a cushion during the economic uh, slowdown. But it is important that these international in institutions do not forget to include refugees while they are providing these financing facilities. And, um, you know, the World Bank has some uh, financing facilities that are specific for refugee hosting countries, uh, in particularly, particularly I'm thinking of the IDA 19 refugee sub window, uh, which I believe right now provides $2.2 billion in grants for um, low income refugee host countries, refugee hosting countries. And then there is also the global concessional financing facility for middle income uh, refugee hosting countries. Uh, that has around $3 billion uh, in funding from banks and donors. And I think it's uh, not only important that within the COVID financing facilities, refugees are included, but also that refugee hosting countries can leverage other financing facilities that are provided due to the fact that they're hosting refugees to invest in their economies, to strengthen their response, and most importantly, to include refugees in that response. Mm. I mean, you, you, you mentioned refugees, and the first thing that <laughs> comes to my mind, Latin America, of course, is Venezuelans, right? We have 4.5 million Venezuelans who had left the country by the end of 2019, traveling mainly to other parts of Latin America and the Caribbean, and I was struck to learn that you know the number of displaced Venezuelans is set to hit 7 million by the end of this year. So can you tell us a little bit about which regional countries uh, host the most Venezuelans? And uh, from what I read, they keep being left out of the response. So uh, you also wrote a, pen, a report how the COVID-19, Rachel, a pandemic is decimating the Colombian economy uh, and exacerbating what was already a challenging humanitarian situation, as you said. So can you tell us a little bit more, please? 
Sure. Um, so, yeah, the, the Venezuela crisis, the majority of Venezuelan hosting countries are, are in the region. Um, the top ones would be Colombia, who hosts 1.8 million Venezuelan Venezuelans. Peru hosts nearly a million, close to 900,000. Chile, about half a million. Ecuador, close to 400,000. And um, Brazil, around, around that much as well. And so, really, we have a high concentration of Venezuelans in, in, in a few countries in the region. And the report I wrote in Colombia is really showing that the lack of regularization, meaning that um, Venezuelans who do not have access to um, legal status, so they're working kind of under the table, um, flying under the radar, essentially, because of the policies that have been implemented regionally, really, this is not just a Colombia issue, but is occurring in Peru, Ecuador, Chile as well, um, and other, and even Caribbean nations like Trinidad and Tobago, um, that lack of status has really um, had a very negative effect on refugees, um, particularly because it, one, it forces them into what Martha mentioned, which is the informal work, meaning that they're not, they don't have a formal job contract. They're working as street vendors or um, as domestic workers or, or jobs that don't provide a lot of protection for people. Um, and the other thing is that if something happens to them, let's say, uh, they get hurt on the job or sick on the job. There's not that sort of social safety net for them to um, be able to take off of work or access health care. Um, and there's also the fear of being deported. So you have this sort of, uh, you know, very complex mix of factors that are essentially forcing many refugees in the region to not be able to access the health care and the work that um, would help them be resilient in the face of the COVID pandemic. And on top of that, you have countries that are lower middle income countries that also have um, populations that are citizens that are also suffering enormously. In Colombia, we have like a situation of crises colliding where you have people that are poor Colombians that are also struggling to find work and, and um, survive during the pandemic. You have, uh, Colombia has one of the highest number of internally displaced people in the world. So you have the IDP population as well that is also suffering. And then you have groups like indigenous groups that also are historically marginalized and, and aren't given um, much att attention paid to by the government or even international organizations. So you've got four or five different crises operating at the same time and everyone needs help and everyone needs resources. And so unfortunately, many governments are saying, well, I wanna prioritize my own citizens. And as Martha rightly pointed out, you know, refugees and migrants really are an economic bonus. But I think in the way we phrase that can be challenging, especially in a region that has historically not had refugees in the past. I mean. This Venezuela crisis, or even in Central America, the, the Latin America has not regionally been a region of, um, sorry, historically been a region of refugees and migrants. And so it's really a very new practice. And I think many governments are just starting to get the hang of what uh, a, a response to not only the pandemic, but um, refugee integration really is. And so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very complicated time and there's lots of um, needs to manage at this point. It's so interesting. I, I, it leads me to precisely another question that I'm so curious about. So why did the situation change so quickly in Peru and Chile, considering that at the beginning it was kind of the political leaders were like touting the success and how they successfully managed it, and now Chile is not doing great um, at all. So what, what happened? You know, it really comes down to inequality more than anything. I mean, that's the short answer is inequality is the problem. But I think um, if we dig deeper into it, um, I'll, I'll take Peru first because I find it just a fascinating 
example where it had one of the strictest lockdowns in the region. The president was very proactive, um, implemented, you know, only certain days people could go out and um, only essential things that they could do, like going to um, the market and going to doctor's offices and things like that. So it was a very, it was sort of the model of what you would expect, you know, public health experts were very pleased with this. But then when I, when we look at actually what happened and why the cases are rising, a lot of it comes down to the fact that, for example, 40%, around 40% of Peruvians don't even own a refrigerator. So it's a cultural practice to have, to go to the market frequently, but it's also a necessity because they're not able to buy food um, for like a week long period and keep it in their house. They have to go every single day to the market because the food will perish, for example, if they um, leave it in the house for too long because there's no refrigerator. So you have, um, you know, people are abiding by the lockdown in theory, but because they're only going out for that essential um, service that they need to do, but, you know, they have to do it daily. So then it kind of erodes the, um, the effectiveness of the lockdown. Um, you also have very crowded living facilities. So this is, this is true in many Latin American countries and Peru is no exception where um, even if you wanted to social distance, it's essentially impossible to do because particularly in urban areas and, and Lima has like 33% of all of Peru's population. So it's a very dense urban environment and you have uh, multiple people living in one household and households very close together, um, very poor ventilation to Peru has like very high tuberculosis rates even in, in the region. So upper respiratory illnesses are already a problem. So you can imagine that even if you wanted to abide by certain rules, it's very impossible to do in a crowded living situation. And then of course, the other thing is, is that the access to healthcare is, it is very different depending on where you live and how much money you make in the region. And, and that's the case really in Chile where you have almost two, two Chiles. You have the wealthier society who actually were the first people to get the virus then brought it to the country because they had been traveling abroad. And then that really actually spreads to um, the other Chile or in, in Peru as well and other countries where it's really the um, informal workers, the lower class, the people who are poorer who end up um, contracting it from the work that they do to service upper class society. And then, you know, unfortunately, as I mentioned, for all these other factors, it's much harder to receive treatment and it's much harder to contain the virus in those populations. So really it, it comes down to the massive inequality. And then of course, if you add on top of that, um, the situation for migrants and refugees who uh, who are even more marginalized because of their precarious status and because of the xenophobia, which is something I haven't mentioned, but is we really have to talk about as well. Um, you know, the, the sort of um, unease that many local populations have when a refugee or a migrant comes in, um, that's also something that can affect them. So it's complicated, but I think, yeah, what it really boils down to is uh, that so, very few have a lot and a lot have very few, very little. Yeah. And, I would like to complement very quickly to the very comprehensive stuff that Rachel said, but just mentioning like in countries like Peru with inequalities so high, you also have very high levels of informality. Mm -hmm. For instance, like in Peru, you informality levels reach over 70%. Uh, so you also have within that informality, people who do not have the ability to take a day off. Mm -hmm. So basically it's survival day-to-day -day jobs that like even if the lockdown is in place they need to eat you know they need to work because if they don't work they don't earn a living and if they don't earn a living they don't eat and if they don't eat they don't you know like it doesn't matter of a pandemic they will still suffer and i mean this situation we see it a lot with refugees but we also have to consider that the pandemic is also affecting the most vulnerable um 
lower tier of society that is often ignored and that when we plan solutions for to include refugees we also need to include these host communities that are highly impacted as well by the pandemic and the, the lockdowns and one thing i'll just add just to, to complement what marta said is that um i think particularly with refugees but in general with the government response um it is important really to provide people the ability to stay home. And so if you're not providing cash-based initiatives or really any sort of supplement, even food aid or things like that to ensure that people don't need to leave their homes, they're going to have to, as Martha said, because they have to eat. And unfortunately, many governments right now are not focusing on refugees in that aspect of providing sort of cash-based transfers or things like that. It's really on humanitarian organizations that are doing that work and they're very limited right now because of the pandemic. So it's just another thing to, to consider. <laughs> There's so many things that are happening at the same time in situations and countries that have already been burdened by not just inequality, but you know, poverty and, and so many um, instabilities. You had mentioned uh, markets, Rachel, and so it, it reminded me of a story that I read recently about Mexico, which, uh, and both, of course, Martha, please feel free to, to, to chip in. Uh, Mexico has recorded more than 30,000 deaths from its coronavirus outbreak. And I read recently a story how the tomato aisle at Mexico City's famed Central de Abasto market, um, quote, I quote, offers a glimpse into why the virus has hit the country so hard. Um, can you tell us a bit more about why this might have been the case, and I, and then I read it was very interesting for me to learn that nearly three quarters of Mexico's coronavirus fatalities have involved underlying underlying conditions such as hypertension or diabetes. From an article in Washington Post, to cite my source, because of cheap processed foods and sugary soft drinks, which have proliferated in recent decades, particularly in poor neighborhoods. Wow, with obesity and all the chronic uh, diseases and illnesses which have multiplied. Yeah. So many layers of, of <laughs> you know, potential for th this disaster to keep getting bigger. What's the what? What's the situation with this market that, that I've been reading about, Rachel? And of course, Martha, please, if you're from Mexico, tell us more. <laughs> you're reading over there. You have family there as well. I'm always curious to learn about the situation on the ground from people who are either natives or who have family there as well. Um, yeah. Rachel? Uh, so I think the first thing to mention in the case of Mexico uh, is actually, I'll talk about the market, absolutely, but I think the first thing to note is the president's response to the pandemic. And Mexico was one of the countries that, unlike Peru, did not was not quick to implement measures. And, and the, the government of Mexico, at least the president, has not been very um, encouraging in terms of setting a good example of, you know, social distancing, wearing masks, um, really just general preparedness and um, taking into account, you know, public health experts advice. So I think, you know, you have, you have leadership who's not um, being proactive with the, with the pandemic. And then I think the other thing, which we've already mentioned a little bit, but the pandemic, what we found, and this is true even in the United States, right, that the, it's exacerbating problems that were already existing prior to the pandemic and has made them worse and I would say compounded them with other new issues. So when you look at Mexico, as you mentioned, you know, the high rates of diabetes and hypertension, you know, this, this is affecting poorer populations. And, is, and that's true even in the United States where we have um, 
Black and Latino um, people are disproportionately facing um, complications from the pandemic because of marginalization. I think it's similar in Mexico where you have poorer people who have to go to the market to work every day because mm -hmm. that's where they earn their money um, and they don't have the luxury of staying home and they're also consuming a diet that is um, cheaper and not as healthy, which means that they're not able to be as resilient from a, a virus perspective, from a health perspective. And so it's really decimating these populations that have to go to work every day that also were poor before the pandemic and were consuming a diet that is less healthy because of their poverty. Um, and then on top of that, you have a president and um, a government who's not been as proactive in the response as they could be. And I think that extends to, um, you know, like I said, you know, ca cash responses or other types of responses that could aid people in being able to stay home. Those things are not being implemented. Uh, Martha, please <laughs> compliment. No, and I think I, I, I just want to echo what Rachel said and what we said before. And I think it, it also comes on to inequality again. And, and I think I, COVID is the disease and the pandemic that show us, shows us that we need to do something about the high levels of inequality around the world. And Mexico is a case study for that. And you can see that, you know, if people cannot take a day of their work, and if people have to go to the Central de Abastos or wherever it is, it is that they need to go to work, they will need to go to work even if there's a pandemic of, or if it is burning outside, it doesn't matter because it's their survival. It's it's what they need to do to survive. And um, in countries with high levels of inequality, we will be increasingly seeing this, and and obviously exacerbated by the fact that if government policies are not necessarily being effective, or um, if there is not necessarily if the policies are in place but the implementation is not really rolling out or trickling down to the places where they they, they need to be like that, then it's a problem. And also, uh, I think it's important to talk about access to reliable information. Um, because I'll, at the moment, we have a, an astonishing amount of people that believe that the pandemic is a hoax, or uh, it won't happen to me, or like, oh, I don't believe this, like, I don't wanna wear a mask. Like, I, I don't know how many videos a day I see of individuals uh, just fighting because they don't want to wear a, a face mask. And I think it's a matter as well to inform and uh, avoid the spread of- Hello? In Mexico, the debates about the mask? Uh, well, I, I see that around the world. Oh, <laughs> I'm yeah. not necessarily, see, like it happens in Mexico, but I, I've seen it here in the United States. Oh. And generally in a lot of places where the spread of misinformation around the pandemic is, really high and um, we need to make sure that the reliable information gets to these individuals as well and uh, I'm not saying that for some of them it's a choice and for so many it's not so we need to uh, tackle both for those who cannot choose to whether go out or not and those who can so so interesting that you mentioned conspiracy theories. I don't know, is it more, <laughs> or more comforting to know that in that part of the world that I'm not too much familiar about, uh, there is there are conspiracy theories happening as they're burgeoning um, in, in some part of the world that I'm more familiar with. So it's uh, both depressing and comforting, I guess. But I do uh, want to ask, um, Rachel, on um, June 9th, you and three of your colleagues wrote a very important article that was published uh, in National Interest. The coronavirus has become terrorist combat uh, weapon of choice. 
Can you tell us a little bit more, please, in terms of the relationship and the impact of coronavirus on those communities under, as you say, the sway of armed groups and non-state actors within the Latin American context? Because um, interestingly, for all listeners who are curious about their, this article encompasses also groups like Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab in Africa, Hayat Tahrir, um, As-Sham in Syria as well and then MS-13 and Barrio um, in El Salvador. So, uh, Rachel, what is the situation in, in, in El Salvador or in Latin America in general? And can you please clarify to our listeners what I thought also was very interesting and important about uh, what's different uh, in terms of uh, criminally motivated gangs, um, that you say actually dominate pockets of land in this context, which we don't necessarily um, think about at first when we think about all these uh, groups that I mentioned in general. Sure, yes. So the case with El Salvador, and there are non-state actors in many other countries. I mean, cartels in Mexico is another perfect example of um, non-state actors or criminal armed groups that dominate areas. But in El Salvador in particular, it's a very interesting case because um, gangs are not, um, in other regions, you'll see a non-state actor or a criminal group sort of dominating one area of a country, let's say. In El Salvador, it's more municipalities or certain pockets of land. So you'll, if you look at a map of, of gang territory, you'll see it looks like um, little speckles almost. So really, these um, gangs are not necessarily dominated by um, mass control of huge swaths of population. They're really, um, they're really fighting at a very local level for turf and control of certain territory. And it's a very localized type of conflict um, that is different than if you look at something like cartels in Mexico who have are highly sophisticated. Um, they really fit under that label of transnational criminal organizations. They have a lot of money and operate um, in large areas of the country. El Salvador is not that case where the, the there is money, but the majority of money that is being made by these criminal groups is through extortions. And so the biggest issue right now with the, with the COVID pandemic is that these non-state actors and gangs, particularly in El Salvador, have dominated certain areas of, of the, of the particularly in the cities, let's take San Salvador, for example, have dominated certain areas of San Salvador where the state is not present. And so what they're doing is actually enforcing um, social, or let's say social distancing or lockdown measures in, this, in the name of the pandemic, but really it's a, it's a way to exert more control. And then what we see in the case of Mexico, for example, we, there's something that we call like narco philanthropy. And Martha, you've probably heard this term before, but it's not so much the case in El Salvador, but in places like Mexico, where you have the, the narco traffickers or the cartels actually providing services that the government is not, and they're able to exert control in that way. And that is actually the case in some areas. And I know in the Middle East as well, my, my co-author wrote about that. Um, where there, there, there's sort of an ideology or a turn of winning hearts and minds in some sense in certain areas. And so, or, you know, someone like Pablo Escobar in Colombia is a classic example of that sort of narco philanthropy. And so the, the pandemic is sort of creating conditions where these armed groups are able to exert more control and almost supersede or fill in the gaps that the, the state does not um, fulfill for people. So it's a, it's a tricky situation. I think the sad thing is in, in El Salvador is that um, the armed groups are not providing the things that um, really people need to, to survive this pandemic. And if anything, they're probably pushing people further into danger and harm because not only are people having to 
fight or you know deal with a, a a virus that is killing people but they're also having to deal with extreme violence from these actors who are dominating control of these areas and not allowing people to leave their homes out of not out of fear of the virus but out of fear of being reprimanded or killed yeah. from these actors so it's a really really challenging situation and unfortunately El Salvador in particular has a very long history of of these gangs um kind of putting people in in in, in grave danger yeah and uh, I mean you you partly addressed it now and you wrote it in that article that that this pandemic does require both coordinated and comprehensive efforts, but that ineffective responses will precisely and primarily be detrimental to civilians, as you mentioned. And then um, I was reminded that violent non-state actors are above international humanitarian law. So that makes it even more complicated, I guess, like you say, to um, for, for the civilians as well. So Rachel, relatedly, there was some information that the virus has kind of entered into some prisons um, in the three countries that are kind of composing the Northern Triangle in Guatemala and in Honduras and in El Salvador. Why is that concerning? It's concerning principally because of the overcrowding issue where prisons in general are a hotbed for the spread of any sort of disease. Um, again, you cannot social distance in a prison. It's almost impossible unless governments were really um, emptying prisons and allowing people to do sort of alternatives to detention like ankle monitors etc but in a lot of these countries those programs don't even exist and i think particularly in central american countries there and i'll talk specifically about el salvador there is um, a history of what we call mano dura which is like a iron fist type of policies where violence is met with extreme punitive measures so anyone is susceptible to being thrown into jail particularly in a country where there is massive and widespread violence per perpetuated by certain actors so you have a very high prison population. El Salvador has the, is the country with the second highest per capita prison population after the United States. And it's a country that's the size of, I think, Rhode Island. It's, it's, a, it's a tiny nation, but it has an enormous prison population. And I think, unfortunately, what we're seeing in this country is that the current president is sort of, not only are armed criminal groups sort of using the pandemic for tighter control, but we also see certain governments sort of taking advantage of the pandemic to become increasingly authoritarian. And so I think that is the case in El Salvador where we, you see even stricter measures and putting more people in jail during a pandemic when that really shouldn't be happening right now. And unfortunately that means not only an increased spread of the virus, but traditionally in these countries when you have a very um, mano dura, iron fist policies, it actually in increases the violence and increases homicide rates. So we're at sort of a lull right now, I think mostly because of um, people are not operating as normal under the pandemic. Um, so the, the murder rate has decreased, but it will likely increase again. And so I think really what needs to be done is that governments have to start looking at alternatives to a mano dura, iron fist policy and really start figuring out other ways to um, reduce violence, reduce murder rates. And then there are a lot of really interesting examples across the world on this in terms of um, how to get people out of gangs, how to reduce what we call recidivism, where someone leaves the gang and then it goes back into it. I mean, there's, there's many programs that can be done, but they need real leadership to be implemented and they need political support. And unfortunately, many of these countries, the political support really is more for the harder, um, stricter policies than it is for these sort of more holistic measures. So we have our work cut out for us, but uh, the prison populations is definitely a huge cause for concern in these countries. Wow, and uh, 
when we speak about vulnerable populations, let's absolutely address the, the specific effects on displaced women and children. Um, even before the global health crisis, more than 70 million displaced people, at least half of them uh, who are women and girls, were already struggling to get um, access to the most basic services. And Martha, please feel free to chip in with uh, and uh, to share uh, your experiences. And you wrote actually about Martha Hernandez, Fernandez, a woman who has uh, you know, in, in empowering other Venezuelan women in Peru, but also Rachel, I want to ask you, how is the COVID-19 aggravating the dangers of human trafficking and exploitation of Venezuelan migrants um, in Mexico, but um, in general as well? And of course, the domestic violence, we have Mexican president who has kind of dismissed as fake uh, a lot of these domestic violence calls, which have increased um, dramatically. Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, the pandemic, again, is exacerbating and um, making much worse pre-existing issues. And unfortunately, I think globally, but especially in Latin America, gender-based violence is a huge issue. Um, we know that in Mexico, I think it was, I have the four times the number of calls um, reporting domestic abuse occurred in the first month of the pandemic. And so we see a really exponential increase in the number of um, violence against women cases that are occurring. And this is happening everywhere. I think, um, unfortunately, with particularly Venezuelan women is that, you know, as I mentioned, they are already more vulnerable to, um, you know, not having those um, protection mechanisms and safety nets like a job um, or like a formal job and um, ability to stay at home safely. Many of these women have to go out and work. And, and, many, and many of the issues that women um, Many women who go out to work often work in jobs that could potentially be exploitative, um, particularly in the domestic sphere. Um, another issue that we faced uh, in Colombia, but also in Peru and Ecuador is the issue of evictions. So when you, evictions in general are bad, right? You know, when you kick someone out of their home, they have nowhere to go. It leaves them incredibly vulnerable, but particularly for women, this is a huge issue where a trafficker or a sexual predator or someone who could cause great harm to this woman, sees her as a as prey. Essentially, she is incredibly vulnerable when, when the woman is evicted or doesn't have, again, the safety nets that um, she requires to you know, survive and, and thrive in, her, in a new country. Um, I think another issue that we're facing in terms of pandemic is something that you wouldn't think is a gender thing, but it is, is um, border closures. So for Venezuelans who typically want to cross into Colombia or Ecuador or Peru, for example, or even Brazil, um, there are the regular routes, which are the legal routes that are operated by the government. And then we have these things called trochas, especially in Colombia, that are the irregular routes. So these routes are operated typically by armed groups or by smugglers or other sort of criminal uh, organizations. And so what we know even before the pandemic was that um, Venezuelans, Venezuelan women who would try to enter through the trochas because they didn't have proper documentation to enter into legally into the countries like a passport or other types of things that they would need, they would go through the irregular route. And what the armed groups um, do is actually charge women sex um, to cross into a country. And so it's an incredibly exploitative um, industry. Uh, many women are um, at risk of trafficking in border areas in particular. So the border closures are actually a huge issue right now that we have to focus on in terms of gender-based violence and trafficking of women and girls for, um, for sex trafficking. 
Um, and then I think the last thing is just the, you know, in a, the deviation of resources sort of away from um, providing support to women, um, even things like shelters that are closed right now during the pandemic um, and using those resources for pandemic response is, is really leaving vulnerable women kind of out of the planning system. And so if a woman is trying to escape a domestic violence situation, particularly a, um, a refugee or migrant woman and has no place to go, she's unfortunately forced to stay in that situation longer. Um, and then of course, in times of conflict, gender-based violence tends to be exacerbated because um, that because of strict gender rules, often um, men are seen as a provider and if they're not able to go out and work, it sort of increases tension within the home. And unfortunately, women often bear the brunt of that of that conflict, of that tension. So those are just some of the things we're looking at in terms of gender-based violence during the pandemic. But Marta, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I mean, uh, no, I think that was great, Rachel. And I want to give a shout out to our colleague, Devon Kohn, who, who is a... Uh, uh, advocate for women and girls within Refugees International, and she published a, an, a fantastic report uh, just uh, talking about all the consequences uh, of COVID on displaced women and girls, which is on Refugees International website. Um, but in general, like within our lockdown and left behind report that we just published, uh, we also find that in four out of the seven countries that we research, uh, women are also more likely to work in hard hit sectors. And, uh, and this is very important because uh, women, when it comes to finding a job and integrate, integrating into the, into the economy, they face a double disadvantage. The first one, because they're women and they face the glass ceiling, lower income because just their female status, as we all do. <laughs> and um, the second one, because they are displaced. So really they're at the bottom of, of the chain when it comes to incomes, when it comes to vulnerabilities on on um, just suffering from exploitation or abuse of their work, and also just like less self-reliance in to be able to cover their expenses. And this increases when they have to take care of a child or they are the head of their household. Um, and because of traditional gender roles, women also tend to have to be taking care of their child and then sometimes uh, have to go to work. And this limits the possibility of jobs that they are able to, to, to take. And this is even before COVID. So uh, all of these, and even if they're not displaced women, uh, the lack of access to childcare uh, really affects the jobs that women uh, take. Uh, but for refugee women or displaced women, this vulnerability is even higher because they don't have access to the networks, uh, like you know your family or your friend that will take care of your child, your cousin. Uh, so they end up often taking these informal jobs that allow them the flexibility and they do end up in sometimes like even more exploit suffering from uh, exploitation and abuse. Um, so in their situation just gets compounded where when host countries post uh, restrictions for refugees to enter, which is something that we are increasingly seeing even before the pandemic in Latin America, and I'm sure Rachel can talk more about this, but as uh, governments in state uh, visas and um, just don't allow refugees to come in uh, to their to, to their nation, especially in Latin American countries. Uh, refugee women or displaced women are taking uh, these irregular routes, and in this in this way, they can, as Rachel, as Rachel mentioned, they, they can suffer from exploitation, or sometimes like to cover their expenses, they might take a job that uh, you know they they might become sex workers. 
And first it is like, oh, I do it voluntarily, but it's definitely like in the long term, it's not voluntarily. So, um, and the story of uh, Marta Fernandez is like, she's working with these women to make sure that uh, they're able to avoid uh, these situations and know their rights and protect themselves, but also find jobs and be able to integrate into the, to the economy. And uh, it's, it was really impressive because it's women supporting women, which is something we need to see. Um, and it's happening definitely around the world. Um, and just a final thing, uh, something that is really important in terms of gender-based violence is something that we definitely see at high rates. Like it was uh, just a few months ago where the big manifestations of the Marea Verde in all of Latin America uh, were happening um, to ask or demand for an end of gender-based violence and specifically uh, the high rates of murdering for women. And uh, we need not to forget that refugee women are amongst those that also get murdered. And especially now with the lockdowns, uh, many women, displaced or not, might be locked with their abuser. So it's important just to um, target this and make sure that within the funding and programming, we can uh, take care of these very specific issues that women face. Absolutely, and I do want to, now that you mentioned, uh, you, we, we talked about domestic violence and vulnerabilities of women and children. One thing that has been particularly heartbreaking and it's not related to Latin America, and I don't know, have you heard it, is that uh, close to my country, Bosnia and Herzegovina, those working with refugees and migrants close to the Croatian border have become accustomed to basically seeing um, a lot of quite shocking scenes where people are frequently beaten uh, and forced back across the border, stripped. They're having had their documents burned or having had dogs set on them. Uh, so there really have been reports of violence um, by Croatian police that continue kind of to almost go unchecked. So when we speak about all the vulnerabilities, so many of them are so same across the border. And then there are specificities in, in regions which are really, um, heartbreaking in terms of the continual dehumanization that keeps on going uh, around the world uh, in, in, in across geographic borders. There is so much more to talk about. I feel like we just scratched the surfaces of so many things, but they are so important. And I wanted to try to fit in as many of those most important um, trends or, or um, things that, that are happening in, in Latin America uh, through Rachel's expertise. And then Martha, you have even a broader scope in terms of the integration of um, expanding of economic rights of refugees uh, in their host countries. So uh, before we go to um, a more personal part of this podcast where I get to ask you a little bit about you, I was wondering if there is anything that you would like to add um, at the end uh, considering your work or um, in terms of the future um, hope? Are you optimist or negative? Are you, but you were working in Refugees International, so you, these are the kind of people who believe that there are good things that could be better, I, I think. Um, Rachel and then Martha, is there anything that you would like to add um, at the end? Uh, sure. I think the last thing that I just want to emphasize is the importance of um, the way we speak about refugees and the importance of telling stories um, and seeing that displaced people, refugees and migrants really are, are just like us. They, they have hopes and dreams and want to work and want to thrive in the communities that they 
find themselves in and that they're leaving because of very dire circumstances. And so they're not victims, but they are unfortunately put in situations where they are um, in very difficult circumstances. And I think the more that we humanize them and the more governments are able to respond to them, the, the better that they will thrive in communities and they no longer become victims of the circumstance, but really can become agents of change in the countries that they're in and really become part of the community and doing amazing things like many of the stories that we've told of Refugees International. So I'm really glad to be having these conversations and speaking about these issues in a way that I think is, uh, again, humanizing and um, it is complex and nuanced, but it is something that I think um, we need more of these discussions. So thank you. You're welcome. Martin, what would you like to, to, to share with our listeners? First of First of all, echoing everything that uh, Rachel said, I think it's an extremely important to uh, acknowledge the many contributions that refugees make to their host countries, either like if they are allowed to work as doctors, nurses, or even like just providing basic services in a time where no one wants to leave their home. Uh, and this happened even before the pandemic. And I really hope that COVID, if something can come out of COVID, is the fact that refugees are active contributors to their whole society and expanding their access to jobs and their economic inclusion will allow them to fully fulfill this role and use their skills and knowledge uh, to the benefits of their host communities. So I hope that after COVID, we can see further development uh, and especially now too, uh, to, for host countries to allow refugees that are uh, particularly skilled to contribute right now to the response of the pandemic, uh, that uh, they allow them to work and expand this access for them. Absolutely. And I'll just end by saying that I was a refugee once and I was a child, but my father was an engineer who was in lines for humanitarian aid for many months and that he just wanted to work. And, uh, precisely to earn money with the skills that he has had to contribute to his family with dignity in, in, in circumstances that he did not ask for. So I absolutely, I don't talk about it much, but uh, I, I absolutely, from my personal experiences, have um, a special heart for refugees and all those who like you to um, dedicate your professional work towards uh, shedding light on this. So. Thank you for that as well. And I really urge our, all our listeners to keep following your work and um, amazing insights that you bring uh, to the public. So um, I will link your um, handles and your social media uh, you know, information so that our listeners can also get more information if they want. But I'm not gonna let you go before I ask you some light questions because it's the pandemic and we do need to lighten up a little bit. So, okay, I'm gonna ask you something that I called five sweet questions. I'll ask and then both of you can respond. And it's really funny how some people give me super serious answers and I, of course, and some people give super right answers. So you can just, as you understand it. Um, okay, so the first question, once the current emergency is over, whatever that end up meaning in, in according to one's worldview, I guess, or geography uh, circumstance, any temporary awareness will also disappear. But what would you not want to forget from this pandemic uh, period? Is there anything? Rachel? 
Um, I, I think for me, the biggest thing is the importance of actually slowing down. Um, I think the, that the way that I personally am, and I think that the work that Martha and I do, you know, it, there is a sort of sense of urgency and, you, and we're really, really passionate about the work we do, but I think it's, it's nice to have been able to sort of be at home and take the time to, to rest and enjoy time with family and those things. And so I don't want to forget the feeling of having time and taking time for myself. Um, so, you know, that, that term self-care, it is very important and it's not something that I'm very good at. So I think um, this time has actually given me more of an opportunity to work on that. And I hope that that stays after the pandemic. Martha? Well, uh, I mean, maybe this is a little sadder, but for me, it's uh, my freedom to just take a flight and go see my family. Like, you know, with the pandemic and obviously my family in Mexico. So with the pandemic, we are just avoiding to leave and we like, you know, avoiding to leave our houses, avoiding public spaces. And, you know, especially when you're international and you have your family in like ex country abroad, like just the ability to just take a flight at any time and be like, yeah, mom, I'll be there. Like, you know, and um, just that and just really taking, uh, appreciating that freedom and also acknowledging the privilege that it is to have that freedom. It's something that uh, I will be more grateful now every time I take a flight. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, my in-laws were supposed to come on April 6th and they were so excited to see their grandkids and it just fell apart and they couldn't come from Turkey. And it's precisely that. My heart breaks when these grandparents wait so long to get grandkids and now they can't see them. So uh, here's to vaccine, uh, hoping that, that the scientists do their best. Uh, because we can get herd immunity, from what I read from um, Spanish. Uh, so next question. Which of your personality traits has been the most useful? Not the best, but most useful. Rachel, go. Um, I think one of my personality traits is... Uh, being slightly uh, neurotic. <laughs> that has not been a great personality trait, but it has been useful in the sense that um, I definitely um, have a lot of energy and uh, ability to work a lot um, and still have energy to spare. So I think that that's definitely a personality trait that has served me well that, of course, again, with self-care needs to be um, done in moderation. But I, I do think that my high energy and uh, slightly that neuroses I have of, of work uh, has been good for me <laughs> overall. Very good self-inspection right there, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> well, as my mom will put it, habla hasta por los codos, which no. will translate, like, I speak a lot. Uh, <laughs> so I talk a lot and like, I never shut up. So I think, I, and especially like now, uh, in working in so important issues like um, this ability to just speak a lot and uh, speak out when I want to or I believe in something, it's very important, especially because uh, I can raise the voice of those who are currently not really heard, and I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm so grateful that you're here today. I found the right person <laughs> for this to, 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 to precisely share the work that you're so passionate about. So, next question. When you have 30 minutes of free time, free time that you can control, like under control, how do you pass it? Rachel. Mm, I've been doing a lot more reading 
lately and reading for fun, um, which has been nice. I think uh, I've been reading just fantasy and fiction and, and things that sort of bring me joy. So if I've got like a spare 30 minutes, I've, I've been doing a lot more reading lately. Um, the other thing that I'll do, which I haven't been doing as much because of the pandemic is dancing, which I dance a lot of salsa. Um, my mother was a dancer as well. So I think those are sort of the two things that I'll try and squeeze in. You don't, do, you don't dance with the mirror. Like, you know, there's some funny clips of people dancing. Yeah, I'm teaching my partner, actually. He's never danced before. So he's, <laughs> learning. he's learning salsa now. So we're doing salsa and Spanish lessons. <laughs> That's awesome. Martha, you? Something that I'm doing now a lot that I actually never did before is taking a lot of long walks outside uh like by myself just like an hour or half an hour and i just like really in um i had the opportunity to be in an area where it's not very crowded and it's kind of like in nature so reconnecting with nature or going hiking on the weekends and just just really enjoying nature and that's something that i didn't know i had in me so that's really nice yeah oh absolutely i think that I always lived, I always joke with my husband, I lived in cement and the cities, but now I realize the, the beauty and of, of the woods and the nature, as you say as well, in terms of just breathing and connecting in a way that we don't, because we're always so busy and we have to do this and that, really appreciating the nature, as you say. And science is has shown through decades of research, the benefits of nature for us as well. So absolutely, I urge everybody to go out there and do walk. It's healthy for you and psychologically and physically as well. So what skill or craft would you like to master, Rachel? Um, I like to cook a lot, but I would like to master it sounds silly, but like uh, like knife skills and like learning how to chop better and like I don't know. I've been taking, I've been doing a lot of like classes online on like how to better my cooking skills. This is something I really enjoy doing, but I've never had any like training and it, you know, just learn from like watching my mom do that and my dad even. First so we're here connecting Sorry? chopping and you're the first person, but chopping is good. You know, like they, they chop like quickly the onions when they do yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> It's a skill. It's a skill. It is a skill. That's a silly one, but it is something I would like to. There's nothing. It's really cool. Martha, you. Uh, so my guilty uh, pleasure is sing to sing. Uh, I really enjoy singing. I'm not saying I do it well, but I really enjoy doing it for myself. It really relaxes me. If I had a, a bad day, I'll just pop Whitney Houston and yell it at you know at the. Oh, my lungs, like, not well, but still do it. Like, it relaxes me so much. So uh, I decided to buy a, 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 a ukulele. Hmm. So now I, I am able to do something with uh, a ukulele. So that's that's, that's been new for me. <laughs> wow, that's that's awesome. Uh, I, I, I would like to ask you to sing something for us. But... No! <laughs> Next time when we perfect the ukulele, let's have like another Zoom that's to kind of see what's going on. Um, so, okay, next question, last one. Are any of your friends completely opposite to you or are most of them similar to you? Rachel. So I did the Peace Corps and most of my friends are Peace Corps volunteers. So I think in some sense, we are all very like idealists and, um, like highly motivated and, and, and care about the world. So I think 
in many in many sense we're very similar i think there's some differences that are good and we've had some really great conversations in the last few weeks about um like how we're managing being at home how we're managing like you know being at home with another person whether it's a roommate or a partner or things like that so i think uh i've always surrounded myself with people who are who sort of push me when i need to be pushed but also i think share my like core values so i think that's the most important thing is that we can we know when we need to push each other and, and also how to support each other the best that we can so yeah and you martha what about your pet well i come from a very small town in mexico and um you know not a lot of people get involved in these issues or uh leave to other cities or countries so i mean it's really a breath of fresh air to go back home and talk about other things like oh you have a business or i have children or uh you know i have a farm or i work in a farm like all these things that is very different from the life in dc or in america or like people even working with refugees and uh you know uh, i have also the opportunity to meet people who are migrants themselves or um just from a very different uh background and very different social status and living as well. And uh, I just feel so grateful uh, to have this plethora of friends that just provide so much to my life and such a broad view of how they see life and their own experiences. Uh, and I think I get, that's just, I, I'm very thankful to come from like, just very far away, although I miss my home sometimes. <laughs> Uh, you, you said it so beautifully, uh, Martha. So um, I'm very grateful that you two found time to be with me here today. Um, I've had um, a really illuminating uh, one hour and a half almost. And uh, I wish that things were different. Uh, and I wish that um, we didn't have to talk so much about an increasing shift, basically, as we said at the beginning, in terms of comparison of how things were in 2010, 2015 now, uh, in, in terms of the number of displaced people. But I am um, heartened by the fact that there are people like you and that we get to connect and that we get to share our work and our active dedication towards uh, bringing the good stories, even when they're bad stories and um, different recommendations. So thank you so much for being here at Dignified Resilience. Is there anything else quickly before we wrap it up uh, that you would like to say to our listeners? One, two, three. Anyone? Thank you for listening. <laughs> well, thank you for listening and uh, be kind and patience and we'll get through this and um, just don't leave refugees behind. Mm -hmm. Take care of yourselves, most importantly. Yeah. Absolutely. I always say stay well and hold tight to those you love.